So Laura J. Miller is a professor of sociology at Brandeis University. She teaches courses in the sociology of culture, the mass media, food studies, and urban sociology. Her 2006 book published by University of Chicago Press entitled Reluctant Capitalists, Book Selling and the Culture of Consumption focuses on the growth of large corporate owned chain bookstores. Welcome, Laura, to the Bibliophile. Thank you for inviting me. Now, your book looked at economic activity and suggested it isn't necessarily conflated with capitalism. Yes. So I was and continue to be interested in the culture of commerce. That is to say that all of us, whether we like it or not, are involved in various forms of economic activity. And we live um, in a capitalist economy, yes, but that doesn't by itself describe all of economic action. And of course, all we have to do is look around the world and look through history and see the ways in which even capitalist economic activity can look very different in different places. Uh, and that's um, um, because of different social and cultural influences. And you suggest that the whole sort of debate between or controversy or uh, competition between the independent bookstore and the big chain bookstores puts this into focus in an interesting way. Yes. I, well, I got into this project you know, many years ago, but in part it came about because of an interest in, in, in what seemed to be this perpetual crisis in the book industry. So you go back in uh, looking at uh, American history and uh, the book industry always seemed to be in crisis. And no matter really what era uh, we, were, we were talking about. So uh, at the time that I was really focusing on my research, the chain bookstores and the so-called superstores were really quite dominant. And it did seem to put a focus not only on certain tensions within the book industry, but the more I did the study, the more I, I thought about how it also helped us focus on different tensions within consumer culture and the ways in which consumers are navigating their shopping activities. But again, it's not just about fulfilling a need to buy a consumer good. It has to do with a lot of other, a lot of other kinds of values and, and desires that, that consumers need to fill. Well, before we get into the specifics of that, why don't we just, first of all, differentiate an independent bookstore from other kind of retailers? What, what do you think differentiates those? Yeah, it's a good question because, of course, it isn't entirely clear cut. One could say, well, an independent bookstore is what is a bookseller that has only one outlet. But independent booksellers who define themselves as being independent sometimes have more than one outlet. They may have several. Uh, similarly, size is often an important distinction. But again, many independent booksellers are quite large. Some of the best known in North America are, are huge booksellers. So the way in which I see that distinction is uh, in, in part that uh, independent bookstores are independently owned, meaning that they are not tied to uh, a, a larger corporation where management, you know, there's a very uh, complex kind of hierarchy and uh, uh, individual outlets are, are managed um, by booksellers, but they really have to answer to a corporate parent. Uh, but again, I don't see that line between independent and chain as always completely obvious. Though I think over time, and something I described in the book, is the ways in which uh, the lines really hardened. And it was about the understanding what it means to have an independent identity. And also because some of those um, smaller regional chains really just got acquired by the big ones. But what's the difference between like your regular retailer and a bookseller? 
Well, in some ways, they're not different. They all have to think about um, uh, being able to pay the lease um, and make ends meet and sell goods and do all that other stuff. But for people in the book industry, and this is not just about booksellers, but I think so many people in, in publishing or uh, who are agents or in so many other facets of the book industry, they consider books to be a very different kind of commodity, that these are items that are extremely close to uh, the human spirit. And they are also not interchangeable. So yeah, we might have a few different brands of cereal, but books are always new and different uh, when they come out. And for these various reasons, people in the book industry do tend to see books as different from other kinds of goods. What about the mystique of a physical bookstore? Yeah, that, you know, especially when we think about um, the, the internet era and many people predicted that physical bookstores would disappear altogether and they haven't. I mean, they blasted through the pandemic, they've lasted through many other kinds of crises. And there is something about that mystique. Uh, and I think, um, it, you know, it has to do with, with a number of factors. One is, as I was just talking about, what it means, um, that what the book itself means um, and how meaningful the book is as a container of uh, uh, human knowledge and human meaning. But the bookstore itself, maybe it has to do with being just surrounded by so many books and the possibilities that are there. Um, but I think it's also part of it is um, a, a history of bookstores, again, not really being quite like other kinds of retail establishments, maybe more idiosyncratic, um, in some ways more mysterious, um, something that actually I described in my book, the chain stores did a lot to take away the mystery, but there is still some of that there. You're not quite sure what to expect when you go in it. And it's also a place where people linger. It's not just about going in, finding the item and leaving, but a place where you are expected to stand in front of the shelf for um, maybe an hour at a time and, <laughs> and really uh, try to discover something new there. Yeah, I must say, I'm a sort of a bigger fan of used bookstores precisely because of that. Mm -hmm. You never know what to expect when you go into a used bookstore. And I suppose that that difference has only widened as this sort of homogenizing influence of bestsellers has crept in. You really do get that sense of adventure and treasure hunting or serendipity or whatever it is when you go into a, a used bookstore as opposed to certainly a chain but uh, even, even uh, to some extent, the independent bookstore. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And, uh, you know, it used to be that new bookstores that were not anywhere near as uh, efficient and, and glossy as bookstores tend to be today, they were really criticized by people in the book industry for being so disorganized. But I think what you're talking about is really one of the charms, right? If um, things are all in a sort of a mishmash and you're not quite sure what you're going to discover as you're roaming down the aisles, that is part of the appeal. And I think you're quite right that today it's in the used bookstore we're most likely to find it. But some independents are still like that. Well, yes, and those are the best independents, in my opinion, are the ones that do, I mean, that's the thing. They have to take more of a risk when they stock all these lovely, weird, bizarre, unusual titles, but you want them to take more of a risk. Yes, uh, and and it's, it's a hard trade-off for them. They have to be located in the kind of community 
where they will attract enough customers who enjoy what you're talking about. And they have to have the space to be able to stock all those sorts of weird, uh, unexpected treasures along with the regular books that make regular sales. So it, yeah. it, it's, it's tough to be a bookseller. Well, this, it's the balance, I guess, isn't it? It's uh, selling enough to stay in business so that you can indeed provide this kind of interesting variety. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I'll just quote you uh, from your book, uh, Reluctant Capitalists. And I think I mentioned to you in an email that I found it in this little English bookstore in Paris. <laughs> no, I don't think uh, I... Oh, I, didn't I? I yeah, uh, I'm trying to remember if it was like the Red Wheelbarrow or, or San Francisco. Anyway, it was red. It was bright red. The, bo the bookstore mm. is lovely. Okay, so, and this has to do with uh, the, the criticisms of rationalization in book selling have focused on the perceived ill effects of impersonality standardization and bigness. Independent booksellers hold themselves up as guardians of local solidarity, local character, and local interests, while the large corporate standardized chain bookstore is seen as fostering impersonal social relations, effacing the distinctiveness of local communities, and using its clout to crush its competitors. Yeah, that's a harsh indictment. Yeah, it is. You do reference dilemmas that that we have in in thinking about and frequenting bookstores because I love all bookstores, right? And uh, if all I've got is a big chain bookstore to go into, well, so be it. Yeah, and there have been many, many occasions when um, you know, certainly when we saw a lot of the big chain superstores closing down. Sometimes they were the only store in a community and, and people were terribly upset to lose their Barnes and Noble. Uh, you're, you're right that I think for most book lovers, they want more bookstores um, uh, uh, available to them. Regardless. But, yeah. Yeah. But, but I think what um, uh, the, the quote that you were just reading, which was summing up a, a number of criticisms of book chains and the ways in which the kind of competition that ensued through um, the, the growth of the chains made it very, very difficult for independent bookstores to stay in business. And also it, uh, you know, part of what I was trying to argue in, in this book is the ways in which consumers become accustomed to certain forms of retailing. And if they expect a standardized looking chain with pretty similar selection in all the cities that they might be visiting, then that becomes what is considered normal for a bookstore rather than that kind of esoteric, uh, you never know what you're gonna expect experience that we were just talking about. And of course, Amazon is only made it worse. Yes and no. Uh, and, um, you know, my, my book, uh, Reluctant Capitalists, uh, which was published in, in 2006. And at that point, Amazon, it was on the rise, but it wasn't nearly as dominant as it is today. And Amazon has definitely exacerbated some of these kinds of tendencies. But it's also, of course, opened up the possibility for people who don't have bookstores nearby to acquire books. Uh, and if they know what they're looking for, well, then Amazon can be a fantastic resource. I think the issue is very much that if you don't know what you're looking for or you're open to finding something other than what you're looking for, then yeah. a physical bookstore is actually a much better place. Yeah. What about that, the unfair advantage that Amazon has with not, not having to pay taxes, uh, state taxes and such? Is that still ongoing, do you know? Um, no, in, in um, most cases now, um, uh, Amazon does have to pay state taxes there. You know, it's the, the legal piece of it is that where Amazon has a physical presence, 
it then is usually required to pay state taxes. And the more that Amazon has grown, the more it's had to build distribution centers. So it has physical presence really um, throughout the country at this point. But in, in the initial years, that really did give Amazon a huge advantage. So um, yeah, people are paying for shipping, but it was really offset in many cases by not having to pay sales taxes. And actually what Amazon did for years and years and years was willingly lose money. So it was yeah. um, discounting books uh, and taking a loss in order to gain market share and not having to charge sales tax really helped to Amazon quite a bit in this way. You talk about all the different ironies that are at play here. I mean, one of them is, uh, speaking of Amazon, is that they're using membership in their TV, uh, you know, streaming service to convince people to buy their prime service, which gives them free shipping. They're playing around with both these mediums. Yeah, Amazon, right. Amazon extends into so many different parts of our lives now. It's kind of funny to think that it grew out of, out of book selling, but the kind of cross promotion that Amazon does is, is really quite sophisticated. And, and it is, as you say about, well, you know, drawing you into uh, being an Amazon prime member, which gives you a discounted whole foods, or it gives you, you know, the you know, ability to do streaming of different kinds of entertainment. It's a very extensive octopus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What about just focusing on the on the bookseller? What and speaking of Whole Foods, what differentiates a bookseller from a grocer? Well, it's I think somewhat similar to, to what I was uh, talking about before in terms of of uh, different kinds of retailers. But I asked that that question of um, a, a lot of booksellers. And most of them did indeed see a, a real distinction, though many of them also would talk about the kind of analogy of nourishment, right? So that grocers are nourishing the body um, through providing food, and books are really about nourishing the mind. And so the activity of selling uh, uh, food and books, there may be overlaps. But uh, the ways in which some people um, you know, will say they need books for survival, um, because it's very hard to imagine a life without having something to read. But of course, we don't need books for physical survival in the same way as we need food. Um, and that also means then that books are marketed in different ways uh, than, than food uh, might be. Food is um, utilitarian though it gets marketed in a way that appeals to our desires for comfort and indulgence and brand loyalty, all, all kinds of things like that. But books, books straddle uh, several lines, one being an important sort of back and forth between the idea of books as being very serious and about self-improvement and education, but also books as being a really important form of entertainment. And of course, they're all different. And they're, they're all different. Sometimes the differences aren't very um, huge. Many people will buy, for instance, they, or they love the same kind of genre, and it's partly because they could expect a fairly similar formula. But yes, they're all different in some way. You also mentioned the fact that booksellers, some of them think of their, their role as, as sort of a moral endeavor. Yes, I, I talked about the ways in which that conception of a moral endeavor has changed over time. Uh, it used to be that, that booksellers embraced a much more elitist role um, about being the guardians of high culture and trying to show readers the best books um, for their own good. Uh, and, and that very much changed uh, in, in the decades after war, World War II, where there's a much more sort of populist understanding of the bookseller's role, that it's not my place to tell people what they should be reading. But it still is the idea that it's a moral endeavor because of the book itself. 
and the important role that books play in the circulation of ideas, in, in helping people envision new possibilities, thinking about their own humanity, uh, and also um, more through the uh, 20th century and into the 21st century, seeing the bookstore as a really important kind of community center, a place where people can gather together, uh, meet one another, find connections between uh, other others in their community and themselves. Yeah, you also talk about the exchange of, of multiple opinions that are, are necessary for the functioning of a healthy democracy. Yes, and you know it's, it's interesting to think again what might have changed in the years since I, I, I published um, Reluctant Capitalists because I think that we now have a much more explicit debate happening about how much free circulation of ideas there should be. And of course, the kinds of problems with uh, uh, disinformation are, are much greater now than uh, they were, you know, just 15 years ago. But I think that what we see in the book trade is, is still largely this idea that uh, having diverse ideas and opinions out there is it's a good thing that it it is a way in which people can both express their own differences and reach an understanding of how other human beings are, are, are not identical to one another, um, but have different interests, different experiences. And it's also, you know, hopefully through that process, a way of reaching more of a common understanding about how to live together and how to reach solutions to our common problems. Yeah, there hasn't really been a problem in getting books to people. Amazon has been incredibly good at that. But I wonder if you see a correlation between this rancor and division in society and the actual reduction in the number of places where people physically exchange ideas about the books that they're reading. Yeah, and and here's where you know, we, we have to think about the role of social media and, and the internet in, to some degree, taking over that space where people are debating ideas. And they're not really doing it in the context of discussions around books. They're doing it in the context of discussions around a Twitter post or a blog post or, or something like yeah. that. And, and I think that is part of the problem, that having something like a book, a, a long form uh, discussion of different ideas, it, in a way, it, it really pushes us into complexity in, in ways that, you know, a very short Twitter post is not going to do. No, these the sort of, I mean, okay, they do link to articles typically, mm -hmm. uh, but it does encourage a sort of a smart assery that uh, it's quite different from the kind of exchanges that you'll encounter when the author of a book is presenting their ideas in front of a group. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's both because of the kind of mediation we're talking about of the computer screen, where you're not physically in the presence of someone else, you don't see their face when you have that yeah. smart alecky kind of um, uh, uh, reply to them. But it, it is also about, I, I think, simply the length of what can be um, written out in, in a kind of debate that takes place over social media compared to, well, the book itself, but even as you're talking about the kind of discussion of a book, which is of course gonna condense it in the same way our discussion is today, but it's still drawing on a much, um, a much more kind of complicated understanding of an issue. Yeah, and there's also, we've touched on it, but personal relationships are suffering within a community. Again, this is, I think, how a lot of booksellers perceive themselves as being facilitators for personal connections and exchanges. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And the, the kind of rancor that you can experience in online exchanges, sure, it can take place in face-to-face 
venues. I mean, we can attend political rallies and see that kind of thing happening, but it's not as likely to happen in a bookstore where there's a group of people, a small group of people gathered to hear an author talk and ask questions or engage in some kind of a discussion group around a book uh, that, you know, it would be way too idealistic to say that those kinds of experiences have ever truly uh, erased divisions or brought people together into some kumbaya moment. But still, Mm. I think it's the accumulation of those kinds of face-to-face experiences that are really important for getting us out of uh, the echo chambers and the bubbles that that we increasingly live in um, to realize, oh, there are other people out there who think differently than me, and maybe it's worth listening to them for a short time. Well, I also think that the decorum around public meetings such that it's much more difficult to have this kind of infiltration that's taking place by Russians or whomever they are trying to disrupt society. Sure. Um, So that in physical spaces, you can't hide behind anonymity in the same way that you can with online spaces. But it's also, it does promote a kind of dialogue where people have to defend their positions a little bit more. And if someone says, why do you think that? Where's your evidence? Then if they don't have any, or if they're just um, sort of repeating a line, some you know, troll got from another uh, uh, internet site, it, it doesn't fly as well. So yes, uh, again, I'm not saying that internet sites don't serve important purposes for discussion. But I think over time, we've really realized you know, what, what we lose by not having such discussions in physical spaces. Well, I'm going to get to how we can save society a bit later on, but, uh, <laughs> but maybe we could just look at the actual, speaking of political engagement, one of the themes of the book is um, consumption as a political act. Perhaps you could talk to that. Yeah, and I think that that notion is um, somewhat more uh, widely understood today than again when I when I first uh, published this book. So the the classic economics position on consumption is that people are satisfying individual needs as consumers, right? We want an item and we're going to find it at the best price, at the most convenient location, whatever satisfies us as individuals. But what I try to argue in the book, consumption has consequences, whether we like it or not. And the fact that we might be patronizing, whether it be an independent or a chain bookstore or Amazon, that again has consequences for uh, those organizations that are either patronized or not. And the idea of of thinking of consumption as a political act is simply to be very self-conscious about those kinds of consequences and understanding that what we do as consumers, we, we have some control over it and that we can align our consumption activities with our ethical, moral and political values. Yeah. um, And again, I think every time you buy a book, you can decide, well, do I want to help foster a healthy downtown, let's say, or, you know, healthy places for engagement? Or do I want to just get the cheapest product and have the profit whisked off to Seattle or wherever it is? Yeah, exactly. I mean, so many people are so sad when uh, one of the retailers that they've been passing by on their way to work for years and years all of a sudden closes down. And it really shouldn't be a surprise. You know, it's sad, but well, if they're not patronized, they are not going to be able to make it in most cases. And so, yes, it is about trying to think about what is most important to one. Does the extra dollar that you save by... buying online, for instance, does that matter um, more than making sure that the independent bookstore in the community is going to stick around? 
Well, and that's exactly what Powell's in Portland has done. They put a stake in the ground and said, we're decoupling ourselves from Amazon. And if you want to us to, to maintain a, a healthy business and a presence in, in your city, then you need to uh, maybe spend one or two extra dollars, as you say, for that privilege. And I think, you know, Powell's is such an interesting example because like so many other uh, bookstores during the pandemic, my understanding is it really had to build up its online business to survive. You couldn't ask people to be coming into the bookstore, uh, certainly in the early months of the pandemic. And a lot of booksellers have had to reinvent themselves by doing that online option. And, And that makes it in some ways even harder to help consumers understand, well, what is the difference between buying online at Pals and online at Amazon, for instance. Um, but it is in part about being able to preserve that physical bookstore, which remains in the downtown area. Particularly in light of what's going on in Ukraine, you can make all sorts of decisions you know, when you purchase things that's support certain established practices or defend what, you know, what you think is important? Yeah, um, certainly in the U.S., this is turning into a um, pretty important political issue, which has to do with the price of oil and especially impacting the price of gasoline. And are people going to accept higher prices um, on gasoline for the next several months in order to continue putting pressure on Russia because of the um, military invasion of Ukraine. It's not clear the extent to which parts of the American population will accept that. We can't have our cake and eat it too, right? We cannot just hope that the world's problems resolve itself without our being involved. And in some cases, Yes, individuals have to make sacrifices and it's not fair. Uh, And there's no doubt that it mostly hurts the people who can least afford it. But there's also an awful lot of people who can make adjustments in their lives and it's not going to um, endanger their ability to keep their home, for instance. And, And I think that that's where, again, people have to think about you know, what, what are the trade-offs here? And what happens if we just say, never mind, um, let other people do the sacrifice? Do you think the United States is just too deeply wedded to everything capitalist to make any moves in the direction of helping bookstores to survive like they do in France? Yeah, that's a hard question. And I guess um, I'm hesitating as to whether it is about uh, being too capitalist or whether it also has to do with different kinds of orientations to books and bookstores. I mean, I think what we have seen in the U.S., which is really quite interesting, is the ways in which some bookstores have um, either become fully nonprofit or they have found patrons who are saying, okay, I'm going to support you with the understanding and you're, you're not really going to be making a lot of money here. And, uh, you know, I think where we are going to be very different from France and the U.S. for uh, the foreseeable future is by expecting government support to maintain bookstores. But that's not to say that the U.S. government can't play important roles. I mean, all we have to do now is look at the antitrust considerations in the um, prospective merger uh, between Penguin Random House and Simon and Schuster, right? That that's being uh, looked out very carefully for antitrust purposes, and and that is a, a really important role that federal government can play. What do you mean by that? Whether or not you know mergers are approved, or whether there's they're told, sorry, you can't do it, or you have to sell off certain kinds of assets before a merger can be approved. To help um, the consumer, you mean? Yes, yes, but it's, um, you know, it used to be 
in the US that antitrust, the notion of antitrust was completely about kind of competition and what's going to help the consumer achieve the lowest price. So the worry is if you have fewer uh, organizations present um, that are that are selling something, they're going to charge higher prices. It's a monopoly situation. But I think that um, that what what we've been seeing with um, the more recent scrutiny of proposed mergers in the book industry is actually broadening an understanding of what's at stake. It's not just about potentially having higher prices because actually that's probably not going to happen you know, with the selling of books, but more about, um, well, in this case, are authors going to suffer because they have fewer publishers competing for their books? And so antitrust can take a lot of different forms, or at least the, the understanding of the consequences of having a monopoly situation can, can take uh, uh, different forms. It isn't just about having lower prices for consumers. But, but the other thing I, I want to just briefly mention at the local level that government can do, which I think would be terribly important for bookstores, is um, to have something like commercial rent control, right? That if you just let the price of um, leasing commercial space go up, 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 bookstores aren't going to be able to handle it. And this is something that that local government can actually step in and regulate. Well, the other thing too, is that local government offers things like tax moratoriums and, you know, favorable conditions for the chains to set up and then employ a certain amount of people at minimum wage, basically. Why can't they offer some of these incentives to, to smaller independents who really contribute to the, the, the liveliness of, you know, of local communities? Um, yeah, and, and there has been litigation around that uh, over the years. And it's actually been very hard to get the courts to agree to uh, favorable treatment for independence. I mean, the part of the problem is, is that by being completely neutral in terms of how bookstores are treated, it has often had the effect of um, uh, helping the larger bookstores because they can take advantage of economies of scale, for instance. So they can say, all right, you know, the, the kinds of, um, you know, I'm thinking about one of the, the major fights that was over the kind of discounts that publishers would give to, um, to, to bookstores. And uh, the publishers would say, you know, look, they're buying in a huge volume from us. Of course, we're going to sell to them at a different price. And, and that argument held weight um, for the most part in, in the courts when that was litigated. So there are a lot of um, legal restrictions, actually, uh, uh, in the U.S. on treating um, mm -hmm. bookstores mm -hmm. differently from one another. Yes. You know, in terms of the, the motivation for the consumer... Uh, it's it's very direct, isn't it? I can save five or six bucks by buying it here uh, versus buying it there, but I'm gonna have a not such a, a pleasant experience when I go downtown. I won't have a place to browse or meet people or whatever. I guess the problem is in our society that five or six bucks up front is just too alluring. And it's also about, well, it's also about convenience. If people are completely exhausted and the idea of going downtown just seems like too much and, you know, it's two in the morning and they're sitting at their computer. Well, maybe it just is going to be a whole lot easier to, to buy uh, online. And again, I think that, you know, so much has changed over the last couple of years with the pandemic, but you know, when, when people are facing so many different stresses, it, you understand why they may say, I just can't handle it today. I have to go with the cheaper or the con more convenient route. But again, long-term consequences. Yeah. 
you talk about how books are different than other products and the non-commercial object of commerce. And I'll just quote you here. For booksellers, selecting titles because of their intrinsic worthiness rather than because they are easily sold has been a way to demonstrate and preserve their special status by maintaining that no two books are reducible to one another and by using aesthetic, moral, and personal as well as commercial criteria to stock their stores Booksellers have tried to keep books from becoming mere products, but these efforts have been severely undermined. Like the department stores, drug stores, and variety stores that preceded them, the, the mall chain bookstores that blatantly employed impersonal commercial selection criteria were despised for so blithely ignoring the hard-achieved distinction between a book and a product. Yeah. So, you know, what I was getting at there is, um, you know, how is it possible that we can call a commercial organization not commercial? I mean, and we do this all the time, right? We say, oh, you know, this, um, this independent film, it's not as commercial as the one from one of the big studios. Well, of course it's commercial, it's being sold for a price. So what happens then is the ways in which uh, people involved in these kinds of activities find um, other ways to understand what it means to be commercial. It's not actually the literal act of selling something. And what took place then with the growth of the um, chain bookstores and there you were referring to the smaller uh, Walden Books and B. Dalton stores that uh, used to be all over the country, especially in shopping malls, is that they didn't even try to make that distinction between commercial and non-commercial. They really embraced uh, that, that kind of commercialism and um, said, yeah, we want to sell, we want to sell piles of bestsellers. There's nothing wrong with that. And mm. that that was a real threat to not just the financial interests of independent bookstores, but also really how they understood what they were doing and that distinction between the commercial and the non-commercial. Yeah, what you say is the association of books and book selling with the human mind and with humanity itself continues to militate against a purely instrumental approach to dealing in the printed word and the concept of the book remains an important device for reflecting on and criticizing the contemporary social order. Yeah, you know, you think about, well, I, I'm an academic, right? I, I'm employed by a university. That's where my, you know, my salary comes from. But you know, I also publish books as an academic. And, and people who are not part of academia you know, would say, oh, you're going to make money off your book? And I, and I would laugh because, no, of course not. I'm an academic, right? We have a very small audience for the books that we read as much as we would like larger audiences. But it, it's really getting out, well, no, it's not just about the kind of money that can be made uh, from publishing or selling a book. And all you know, members of the book industry who are engaged in this endeavor realize that they are going to be losing money on so many of the items that they're in the business of producing. They know it. And in many cases, they say, that's okay because we believe in the book that we are publishing or the book that we are selling. Um, in some cases, like with the large superstores, they just needed enough stock there to you know, give the appearance that they had um, a huge variety. So there were economic considerations. But um, for, for so many people in the book industry, it's that, well, we hope we can sell enough of some books to keep us in business, but that's because we really wanna be able to publish and sell and promote the books that we think are really worthy, even if they're not gonna make money. You know, that's ideally how you you wish that a, a publishing house would operate is that we want them to stay in business long enough to be able to 
uh, or to the extent to which they can provide us with really great books instead of, <laughs> you know, instead of the stuff that, that maybe just caters to a, to a big audience that want to be entertained only. Yeah, and to be fair, uh, it's, it's a hard job uh, for many reasons. And one is that it's never entirely predictable what is going to sell well and what, um, I mean, it's probably more fr- predictable what's going to be a total flop. But publishers in particular uh, have to take very big gambles, or they don't always have to, but they do take very big gambles, sometimes putting lots and lots of money behind a book, say, in in terms of very large advances, and it doesn't always pay off. On the other hand, sometimes books that they did not expect, didn't anticipate to do super well, they resonate with people for whatever reason at a particular time and, and do. So publishers also, I mean, some publishers, you know, small publishers, sure, there's some who can publish a very tiny number of books um, uh, and make money off of it in the same way that you can have very specialized niche booksellers that really don't have much uh, stock and they have a very targeted audience. But I think that throughout the book trade, um, there's an understanding as well as a desire that, well, we we need to try out lots and lots of different books and, um, and hope that enough of them resonate. Just winding down, do you think that, first of all, the public is well served right now in terms of the sort of selection and variety and quality of books and accessibility? Um, yeah, I think the public has a massive amount of choice in, in terms of books available to them. It, of course, varies from one community to another about the, the kinds of bookstores that are available. But yes, there's, there's huge selection available to people. In some ways, I think the question is more, is a book trade well served by the public right now? And, and I think that we are you know, seeing a, a period of time where Book reading, uh, well, it's been in in decline to some degree, or at least uh, among some parts of the population. And and I think that the concern is is more about how do we keep the readers engaged with what's going on in order to support the different kinds of institutions that are part of the book trade. Anyone could self-publish a book. Um, uh, They don't need much in the way of resources. Um, but then they are losing the kinds of editorial services and other, other ways in which book professionals really do know what they're doing. And the same way with bookstores. Again, anyone with access to a computer and an address um, can order a book online and, and have it delivered to them. But they are then losing the kind of um, expertise and character of a bookseller who might be having a very particular selection to reflect that bookseller's interest, the community's interest, and provide that kind of unanticipated discovery we were talking about earlier. So where are bookstores going then, do you think? I don't think they're disappearing. Um, I think the, the crisis of the last couple of years in some ways gives us confidence that they're not just going to vanish altogether. But Part of me thinks that maybe their heyday has passed, that uh, we're, we're not going to anytime soon be returning to a time where there were just so many uh, book retailing uh, operations uh, around uh, the, the country like we had in the past. And I think that they're going to be probably serving uh, a more uh, selected uh, audience for, for quite some time. And so perhaps that that sector will will shrink, but I think it will still play a sort of outsized role in in the culture because of uh, the nature of books and the ability to deal with ideas and to try out new forms of understanding in very complex ways that other forms of communication just, um, again, it's not that they're not worthy, but that they're different. They don't do the same thing that books do. And 
it seems to me that, you know, we're talking over Zoom here, which is great, but there is something lacking. And that's what a meeting place, a physical meeting place provides. And that's something valuable. Yeah. And again, I think people understand that. I, I teach at a university where many of our classes were online last year. And everyone is so happy uh, to be back in the classroom, right? We want that kind of physical engagement with, with people, um, especially when talking about ideas. So why is that? Why do we want that? Well, why especially with ideas? Maybe because ideas are threatening, um, because you can't just say it in a single sentence and have everyone understand it, that it usually needs a kind of back and forth. And also because it's how people, they, they change their minds through the act of, of conversation and discourse. And to do so in, in a physical setting, it allows, I think, for a kind of nuance, even though as we're talking on Zoom, this is great. But for instance, it's harder to interrupt one another because of the kind of lag that takes place with technology. And there are certain ways in which being in the physical presence of people both, I think, humanizes us uh, and, and allows for more nuance. And that humanization is so important when you look at things like the rise of uh, totalitarianism. That's a bit of a jump, but... Um, but yes, that's right. It, it becomes a lot harder to inflict pain and suffering on people when you actually see what that looks like close up. Anything else that you want to add to expressing your thoughts or concerns or love of uh, an interest in books, bookstores? Oh, I don't know that there's much more to add other than uh, probably telling your listeners what they already know, which is if they want to keep bookstores around, they need to patronize them and engage with them. And, and I think you know, part of my, my own work as, as a sociologist continues to be trying to understand what is unique about print. And I think there is something, again, it's not just, it's not about one form of communication being superior to another, but that uh, in the same way that physical books have not disappeared and have certain advantages to other forms of communication, I think we can say the same for physical spaces that, that sell them. That's wonderful. Well, uh, let, me, let me give you a big virtual thank you for your time today. It's, it's been a pleasure to talk with you, uh, Laura J. Miller. Thank you. I have enjoyed this too. Very good.